So, the Word of God, John's Gospel, chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 18. Let's hear His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's Word alone endures forever. May God bring His blessing. Well, we are in that season and that time of a reflection upon the birth of Christ. And I think it pretty much goes without saying, at least in our midst, we know and understand. And I hope uh, and trust that we are engaged in clarifying some of those misunderstandings about Christmas. But it needs to be said for everyone who is both here and listening through that we know Jesus was not born on December 25th. It, it was a time, it was simply a time and date chosen to remember His birth. And I know, particularly within some of our Reformed circles, celebrating or remembering or bringing to light such circumstances in accordance with worldly uh, ceremonies and that is not always fond or uh, welcomed. But I will say... Uh, that I think it's important and key that we as as the church understand both the importance of the birth of Christ and using it in a time and season when people's minds and thoughts are more open to discussing religious things, being better prepared, but also to, to embrace this truth about Christ and Christ incarnate in our own hearts, that our worship of God would be more sure and more joyful, more blessed to our own souls, knowing that He became a man 
for the purpose of our deliverance, for our salvation, for us to be reconciled to Christ. I think sometimes the language that Christians use around this season is also not helpful. I say these things just to clear the air on them. That Christmas is not about a little baby being born as we would have it in our family events. Even though I'm sure joy and wonder filled the hearts of Mary and Joseph when Christ came into, uh, into their arms. But even more, it is about the most mysterious and glorious and wondrous event in the history of the world. God called the time of Christ's birth the fullness of time. Time had now become full. So it is more than about a date on our calendars. More about what God is at work doing in the history of the world. And the wonder of this event, we call it, the theological term is the incarnate Christ or the incarnation. And that theological term simply means that the very God of heaven, the Son of God, became a man on earth. He took to Himself a true and physical body and soul. And John puts that in theological terms himself within our text when you look at verse 14. And he says, The Word became flesh. And he spent the first couple verses, a few verses, defining for us who this Word was. What a strange way to call Christ the Word. But what is the Word He is referencing? Well, He's told us in verses 1-3, to that Word is the one who was here from the beginning. Where does that take us? It takes us back to the very first sentence of all of Scripture. In the beginning, God... (laughs) That this very One who is the Word is God Himself. God the Son. And that Word was with God. Meaning that however mysterious it is for people to understand that there are more than one persons in that Godhead. That when we speak about the Lord our God, we are talking about three persons who are in substance and power and glory, one living and true God. This is the Word that was with God in the beginning. That this is one who was not a created being like so many want to convey, but is God Himself, the Son of God. And in case you didn't get it, that Word was God. In all that God is, so this Word is God. (laughs) There is no distinction in power and glory and substance for Him other than in His person as the Son of God. That's part of the mystery. And that's something that John is saying here. This, This Word... 
became flesh. That's the wonder. Is that He took to Himself our creatureliness. You consider that with the angel's announcement in Luke 2. Unto you is born this day. Isn't, uh, just a side note. Isn't it interesting that how God and the angels speak of the birth of Christ, they always speak of it as God giving to us. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior. And who is this Savior? Christ the Lord. (laughs) Christ the eternal, infinite, unchangeable God is now born. And He's your Savior. And you see John making that point John the baptizer uh, in verses uh, 6 down to uh, 8 and over in verse 15. uh, John the apostle is writing about John the baptizer and about his mission and responsibility in bearing witness to Christ. And look at John's witness of Christ, the one who was to come. And you read further on in this chapter, John himself was challenged, are you the Christ? And he said, no, I'm not. And here in verse 15, this is He of whom I said, He who comes after me. And we know from Luke chapter 1, John the baptizer was born about six months prior to Jesus, His cousin. (laughs) He who came after me is preferred before me. Why? He was before me. This is God Almighty who has come in the flesh to meet us. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the one eternal, infinite, unchangeable, and sovereign King, Lord, and God of everlasting glory. And He is the Son who has been given to this world by the Father to alone be the Savior of sinners, who alone is the way of truth and life to the Father. And that is the mystery and wonder. And in saying that, I think especially as Christians, if I could just put in a personal exhortation here, we need to stop referring to this time and season as the birth of baby Jesus in that light. We need to stop reducing Christ to simply a baby in light of how we think of babies. But to recognize He is God in the flesh. There's a glory that belongs to Him that can't be reduced. And it's in light of that as we look at this text and particularly focusing on verses 14 to 18, we see the mystery, the glory, the wonder of Jesus Christ. And that mystery, that mystery is revealed to us in in verses 14. The Word became flesh. God became man. Stressing this point one more time, but to understand it in respect of what it meant for him, 
the Son of God to become a man. God became a man. The infinite, eternal God of heaven descended into this world to take to Himself our image. And if anything ought to step, make us step back and, and be filled with awe and wonder is this truth. We are creatures. We have been created as the penultimate part of God's creation. That there is no other creature on earth, no matter how dumb we act at times, is of high intelligence and glory in the eyes of God than mankind. Isn't that amazing? Even in our fallen state, even we as believers who have been redeemed by Christ and yet still struggle in our sinfulness, we have far greater worth to God than all the hosts of heaven. Whatever glory we we may form in our minds about the, the angels that surround God's throne, in the heart of God, we bear His image in ways and means that they don't. We were created to have that special and particular communion with God that they don't. And here in Christ, God, the Word, becomes flesh. The fullness and glory and person of the Godhead now dwells in a body like ours. And that's where you can read on the front of your bulletin from the larger catechism that Jesus Christ in coming in the flesh He took to Himself a true body, a reasonable soul. He became as our as we are, of our substance, He who is of the substance of God. And He dwelt among us. He made His tabernacle with us. The reality, as I spoke earlier, about that tabernacle being constructed in the time of Moses and being set in the very heart and center of the tribes of Israel. God wanted to be in the midst of His people. That word tabernacle is the word that's used in verse 14, translated dwelt among us. But this is speaking about Christ who now becomes a human being. He's made His dwelling real and true in a body like us. And for Christ, we need to understand that contrary to whatever anyone thinks of themselves or thinks collectively of all of humanity, for Christ, it was the supreme and greatest act of humiliation. The Creator becomes a creature. How many of you, as parents, have ever received one of those delightful drawings from your children or from your grandchildren? And you ask, who is this? And they say, that's you, Papa. That's you, Nanny. And you're like, wonderful. (laughs) 
Reflect that upon God becoming a man. That, that humiliation and condescension that he underwent. There's, there's no act that can come close to describing grace. When we receive that benediction at the end of the service, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is part of that grace. I became a creature like you to deliver you from all your sins. And it involved self-humiliation. I wonder if that's why so many people resist the, the mystery of Christ incarnate. It's because we have such a high idealism of who we are as human beings. And yet we don't regard the glory, the surpassing glory of who God is. It comes back to that, that one of our, our greatest sins is thinking so great of ourselves and thinking so little of God. And yet His greatness is so great, it's beyond our comprehension. Consider what Christ left. Heavenly glory. I, mean, we, we, I handed out that book, um, Heaven and Hell. Maybe some of you have started to read it. I know that you got to get through the hell part first to get to the heaven part. But we can only imagine, we can only use types and shadows to consider what heavenly glory is like. And Christ left the glory of heaven and He entered the darkness of this world. Sinful, wicked, dark world of mankind. And you consider what He became. God who is Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. He took to Himself flesh, that was finite and mortal and corruptible and weak. He took a body that had to be changed every day by another person for its first few years. We stop, stop and think. Anyone who's a parent knows what those first few years are like. Learning to constantly clean a child. Do you think that was any different for Christ? You see, you see what I mean is, is that we're not comprehending the glory of this one who is now in the flesh and in a body of death. It meant subjecting himself to suffering. He was born of a woman. And it wasn't just that Jesus entered into a sinful and wicked and dark world He not only entered into a world that is suffering, but He also became a sufferer Himself. He had to endure evil in the heart of man. We hear those words of Jeremiah. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. And here is the Lord coming into this, the one who is of purer eyes than to behold evil has now come into the world to endure it. (laughs) He had to walk in death. 
the result of our sin and our misery is that we are dying people. Something that is lost on this generation that is confronted with death and knows not what to do. That He who is the life and the light and the glory of heaven and who, as verse 4 says, is life itself. And the life that He is is what brings light to all of us. We only live by the will of the One who is life. And He had to come and walk in death. He had to come and experience the full pains and sorrows of man. The very consequences of God's curse and judgment upon us. In becoming a man, He had to take these things to Himself. Born of a woman. What's the next line? Galatians 4.4 Born under the law. Come with the sole purpose of enduring that death and that consequence of God's curse and judgment upon us. Think about it from Genesis 3. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Christ became such a creature. This is condescending grace. This is the mystery. And this mystery to us, it becomes the question, why? Why, oh God? Why, Lord Jesus, would you do it? And I leave you simply with those words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8. Again, because this is the word that's going to come through here often. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you do. Before I read the rest of it, I hope every one of you here and those who are listening can say, yes, I know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That though He was rich in all the glory of heaven and all the glory He possessed as God the, the Son through whom all things were created, as the one who was worshipped and adored by the hosts of angels in heaven. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. There's the mystery. And the only answer to that mystery, why did the word become flesh? It's because he desired to save us. Not Humbling, I hope it is to your hearts. The rich glory of the one who was God in heaven, exchanged for the rags of shame and suffering of men in this world. That's the mystery. God revealed in the flesh. And with that mystery comes, secondly, the glory. And then you see that glory in verse 14 and in verse 18. That there is a glory to Christ coming in the flesh. That Word became flesh. And what does He say immediately in verse 14? And we beheld His glory. The glory of the One who is the Son of God. 
Which means, as, as John is exposing this and as he continues on to write about who Christ is and pouring his heart into trying to help you understand and, and with the help of the Spirit, helping you to believe that Jesus is more than just a man. He is God in the flesh. Is that in Him we behold His glory. The glory is the only Son of the Father the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on in verse 18 to make it clear that Christ alone is the one who in the bosom of the Father has seen Him and declares Him to us. Do you want to meet God? I hope when you start to think on that, all of you who are listening to me, to meet God is a fearsome thing. I know there's many uh, movies and, and many programs that speak about the desire of a creature wanting to meet its creator. In our circumstances, that's a dangerous thing. And God even declares that it is a dangerous thing. Think about this with Moses in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Moses is is leading God's people, has come through the trauma of that golden calf and what it meant for Israel to, to defy God and to break every one of the commandments that God had written upon the tablet, which is symbolically seen as Moses throws them down and they break before the people. That Moses then comes as God revives his covenant with Israel and, and with Moses. And Moses says, God, can I see you? <laughs> I see you through that pillar of cloud. I see you in the burning bush. But can I see you, God? And what does God say to him? No man shall see me and live. We hear that same truth echoed in 1 Timothy 6. Sorry, sorry, in 1 Timothy 1.16. He is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Sorry, I was right. It's 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. We, we don't comprehend what Adam forsook when he reached out and disobeyed God, ate that forbidden fruit. We don't comprehend what Adam, as our covenant head of humanity, what he lost for us. Here was one who was able to walk with God in the purity and holiness, in the righteousness and knowledge of the truth of who God is, from being created in the image of God. And for however long it was, he walked with God. God came to him in the garden. He could see his God and live. But in that one act of rebellion and in Adam, you know, to be in Adam is to acknowledge, I am sinful. I am a creature who in my own nature, will rebel against God. I am one born in sin. I am one with a heart that is deceitful and wicked. Why? Because you are in Adam and His sin has been imputed to every one of us. Do you want to see God? 
Well, in your sins, that means standing in judgment before Him with a curse over you. And the only thing that God can do to such a person is to condemn. Indeed, He has condemned us. But the glory of Christ, the Word who became flesh, here comes the One who, as as John says, has seen God. Indeed, He's the only begotten of the Father. Indeed, He's in the bosom of the Father. And He has come to declare the glory of God to us. He is the only One who has seen the Father. The only One who is in absoluteness truly loved of God. Isn't it amazing that the one commendation that the Father gives of His Son any time that He wanted the world to know something about Christ, that the Father speaking from heaven said on, on two occasions, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. He's in the bosom of the Father. Again, just like a mother takes the child that she's given birth to and draws it near to her. It's that image that God conveys about His love for His Son. Who among men does the Father love in and of themselves? Just think about that. His love to us can only be through Christ. Because we have nothing of any worth in and of ourselves. And this is the glory that comes and meets us in the Word who became flesh. Because again of His grace toward us and His condescending graciousness toward us, it is always in spite of us That the Father loves us, not because we deserve it, but here it comes with Christ, that perfect love, perfect union, perfect delight that the Father has for Christ. What does Christ say about that? That glory is now conveyed to you through me. Isn't that marvelous? John 17, you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And my glory which you have given me. I want you to give to them. For you have loved me. From before the foundation of the world. And I want that love to be upon them. It's not amazing. That the glory. And union. And delight the father has for his son. Is something, if I can dare to say this, is imputed to us through Jesus as well. And Christ came in the flesh to bring this glory to us. Ah, oh, that I may be in them and you, Father, in them, even as you are in me and I am in you. Let it be for them. The love which you have loved me with which you have loved me from the foundation of the world, let that be in them and I in them. You know, the Word became flesh to take this this wretched, sinful, miserable man of death to make him a child of love 
in union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What glory. And you see John saying that. You back up to verse 12, and what does he write there? As many as received Christ, to them He, to them Christ gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe on His name. Through the simplicity of faith. Not by works we do. Not by anything. There's nothing we can do that can gain and attain this glory. But through faith in Christ. That's why we say you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you gain that right being a child of God. What did John say in 1 John chapter 3? Those wonderful words. He's, and it's written in such ecstatic, one, mind-blowing, to use my phrase, mind-blowing knowledge and wisdom. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Beloved Now we are the children of God. And it hasn't been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He, Jesus Christ, is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What glory is ours. And Christ became flesh for this purpose. And that brings us to the last thing here in in these verses, and that is the wonder. I think I've already expressed some of that. But it's the wonder of what Christ accomplished for us. And you see in verse 14, in verse 16, in verse 17, uh, the two words that just jump out. The Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. What wonder meets us in Christ. And you note the comparison made in verse 17 is there not to say that the law was without any truth or without any grace, but in our futility, no measure of obedience could ever attain the satisfaction for our sins or the truth that God requires to be within the inward man. Because all of our obedience is always met with and and proceeds from a sinful soul. It's always marred by sin. No matter how good you think you might be, all your goodness is proceeding from a heart that is deceitful and wicked. We had that discussion this morning in our home about obedient children and how we inadvertently like to reward our children when they obey us. Because as parents, we know it's it's always a delight in the home, isn't it? When children actually do what we ask them to do without any attitude, with just that generous, happy, smiling face of compliance. Sure, I'll do what you've asked me with all the devotion of my heart to you, Mom and Dad. I really want you to be pleased with me. How many of us have heard those things often? (laughs) We as parents step back and we recognize 
that even when they do it without asking, that we can easily find fault. But we tend to err, or at least I hope as believers, we tend to err more in grace knowing that even their obedience is still flowing from a deceitful, wicked heart. How much more with God? And yet here, the wonder of Christ coming in the flesh. Here comes the one who in truth has fulfilled all of the law's demands that God has required, which not one of us can meet. The law has not been set aside by Christ. It has been fulfilled by Him. That law that demands the glory of God's holiness That law that demands absolute obedience that God requires of us. That law that is the foundation of walking in full union with God in all goodness and love and peace that we heard of from from Mark 12. How do we love the Lord our God? With all our heart. Not just with half a heart or half-heartedly with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. How do we do that? And we all step back and we say, I can't. That truth that God demands, Psalm 51, in the inward parts, is far from me. Christ has come in the flesh. Christ was born under the law. And in being born under the law, He came as that true and perfect human. That true and perfect man. And He fulfilled all that law as the second Adam. And He did it so that we who are in Him can walk in truth before God. And it is this righteousness of Christ that ever covers us. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. And his grace, it fulfilled the law's condemnation. The law condemns in, in all its truth and what it requires. It cannot help but condemn. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The statutes, the precepts, the judgments of God's law. They're all there for us to obey. And we are cursed if we do not do all things that His law commands. Can I please God with my obedience? When I understand that truth. Can I escape the punishment for my disobedience? Can I continue in all things and never know the curse of death? And what does the law scream to us? No, no. Here is where the wonder, the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ meets us. Here's where the Prince of Peace comes and says to our hearts, Peace, be still. Let not your heart be troubled. I have borne the condemnation and curse of the law. I have quenched it in all 
its precepts that were against you. Through me, you can have peace with God. That's, that's a wonder, isn't it? <laughs> Christ came in the flesh to bring forth this truth to you. We, we cannot, of ourselves, we can never be pardoned for our sins or forgiven and accepted by the Father for anything we have done. Our righteousness, our obedience, our love for God falls desperately short. Christ has, has a righteousness that is perfect, an obedience that is sinless, a love that is absolutely pure. And this is what He gives to us. This is the peace that comes and guards our hearts and minds from all anxiety. And this is a peace, again, that can only be gained by faith in Christ Jesus. This is why you hear those words of the hymns that we have sung, and I say them to you again. Come. (laughs) We are praying, come, Emmanuel. Well, God says to you, Come and behold the Word who became flesh. Come and behold the One who so willingly came to be the Savior that you need. And behold the mystery and the glory and the wonder that He has done. Behold the Lamb of God, Son of God, who can take away all your sin. Let us pray.